thing, but since the Zoom thing starts all at the same time, we can just synchronize off the different WAV files on that. It's not that hard to edit. I had to do it before for the yeah, yeah, yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. True. There's no need to synchronize it. That was a good episode. I enjoyed listening to it. Thank you. Mike is Mike's fun to talk to. He's always smart cookie, that one. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we're just, I don't know, are we just in the episode? Are we it. just doing this Mark Marin style, just like mid-convo? Should we do that? Or I guess I should oh. click the lighter, you know, mm-hmm. Lil Wayne. I didn't I didn't pack the bong today. I've actually been taking a little bit of a bong break. Gotcha. Is that a Topo Chico you got, Aster? Oh, yeah. It's a grapefruit uh, Topo Chico, which my wife really likes, and now I'm into. Nice. Love a beverage. Got to have a beverage check. Maybe we should institute the Mm -hmm. beverage check up front more often. I have two, like, Diet Coke bottles that have, like, both a fifth of Diet Coke in them. Oh, wow. Um, I just I just have the Nalgene. Nice. You know. Water. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, we have a guest today. A, a once again, rare guest appearance on the Hotbox. Um, mm-hmm. A cherished, longtime Twitter mutual friend, scholar, critic, Aster Gilbert. Mm-hmm. We're very... Uh, thank- oh, sorry. No, no. <laughs> I was just going to say we're ha- very lucky and happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be here big fan of the pod yeah you know that's i think the nice thing about uh having kind of limited curated guest selection is have getting people who are like fans and friends and familiar with the podcast and Mm -hmm. you know go with the flow know the flow they already got the whole premise and everything exactly you know the drill you know the vibe yeah Yeah, i'm here for it Mm mm-hmm well, so yeah, normally we start the the show with that kind of that unboxing, just talking about what we've been, what we've been kind of consuming lately and stuff like that. And Aster, since you, the guest on the podcast, have you been, you know, consuming anything lately that's really caught your eye or just... Definitely. Um, I've really um, been going deep into Monty Hellman uh, in the past couple days. I think I watched like six or seven in the span of three days. Rest in um, peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, Hellman was someone I like the handful of movies I had seen prior to his passing um, left a really big impression on me. And I absolutely love them. But for whatever reason, I never went through the rest of his catalog. Um so I've been doing that. One that really stuck out to me, if you have not seen it, that I highly recommend is um, Flight to Fury. I think it's his, oh. his, his third feature. Mm-hmm. It's written by Jack Nicholson. Um, Ooh. Just pretty pretty awesome, pretty awesome stuff. Um, but you guys have both seen some of his stuff, right? Which, uh... I think I've seen one or two. I've seen Tulane Blacktop. Mm. And actually, that's the only one I've seen. Yeah, I've seen a few of his movies. Um, I can't recall, like, quite off the dome how many of them I've seen. And I think part of that is just because, you know, he was 
co-directed or finished or started so many different movies or was involved tangentially in so many different movies where there's some things where I'm like, wait, was he involved in that? Or like, I forget that he's involved in that. Um, so I've seen Tulane Blacktop and I saw that in high school as a budding cinephile kind of going through Criterion movies um, and also being like, whoa, this casting is you know, pretty fascinating. Um, James Taylor and uh, uh, Dennis Wilson, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and War Notes. Yeah, right. Which, I mean, War Notes is one of my favorite faces in movies, mm-hmm. favorite voices, just favorite presences in general, especially of that era. Dennis Wilson, mm-hmm. also a great artist, but like complicated, fucked up, tragic life. Um so that kind of context makes that, you know, odd film role from him more interesting. But I don't know. His movies are so it's weird because they're so sometimes so elusive and there's just a, a sort of an odd atmosphere about some of those movies. But he was also such a kind of workhorse and journeyman. And like we were talking before recording about just some of the various random things that he worked on and like one of them that I had kind of totally forgotten about Aster that you mentioned was this like Shaw Brothers Hammer UK Hong Kong co-production called Shatter about this this, like detective English PI spy I don't know Mr. Shatter and like it's it's not like amazing but it is just a sort of fascinating synthesis both of UK film production saw at that time martial arts filmmaking and then you got Monty Hellman in the mix as well coming from the like Corman school um mm-hmm. and as you were talking about how that's one of the reasons why Monty Hellman is really interesting to you just like that connection to Corman and sort of coming up in that like factory a little bit yeah I think it's really interesting because I-, I would consider Hellman a very um I don't know philosophical director I guess his films seem very radical and experimental um, mm-hmm. given the, um, I don't know, the place where they come from or the, the contemporaries at the time, um, in a way that some of the other films aren't as like formally radical, but yet mm-hmm. they don't, um, but they also seem to meld that with a lot of, uh, just wanting to show people hanging out and, and vibing and being friends and stuff. It's, it's kind of an interesting, um, combination of interests in his films, but Tulane Blacktop, um, is definitely one of my favorites. I just, that was one that I rewatched the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. James Taylor's performance is really great in that as well. Nathan, you'd mentioned that there's something like, I don't know, kind of like sinister, but relatable about him in some parts. I don't know if I'm yeah, yeah describing no. that accurately, but I guess, yeah, I think like, I don't know, not to people, I'm sure people listening to this podcast, you know, you know, probably some James Taylor fans. I don't know, but honestly, I've never really clicked with James Taylor as a musician that much, at -hmm. least like of his kind of contemporaries of sort of seventies singer songwriters, the Laurel Canyon scene. I just got other people I like more, you know, I don't know, Jackson Brown or like whoever I, most of those people I like, I just, James Taylor's music has always been like a little too pleasant for me. And there's something that feels a little like, calculated and manufactured about some of his work sometimes to me. Um, and I feel like you see that a little bit and like, I don't know, you know, Taylor Swift is named after him and I feel like there's maybe a kinship between those artists. So to have him play someone who is kind of 
a little ambiguous, a little sinister, like you said, is I think definitely kind of interested in casting to me just because I don't know. He just seems like a, a calculating artist to me a little bit. Yeah. And also that movie is one of the few like road trip movies where I feel like like the road starts to like wear down on people in like a way that actually happens when you take a road trip. I don't know. There's just like this bizarre tension between people that doesn't. I don't know. There's no real source to it besides the fact that they're stuck in a car together. Yeah. And they're, well, they're having the race. They're like, there's the cross country race that becomes the, the plot where they're racing for each other's pink slips. And there's this uh-huh. interesting, like, so there's this fierce competition in this kind of merciless subculture of competition, but then all of the people in that subculture, it's like, they're gravitating towards being, I don't know, more familial or, friends or something and then that's always interrupted or yeah interrupted by the like the structure this tight structure of the competition of this race that they're in and the nature of you know drag racing um the same thing is in uh cockfighter but in a kind of different style i think those films have very different approaches um where it's like i don't know one it's about this cockfighter right and it's another like subculture that you're immersed in um And it's this almost like Western showdown style, like two men are going to fight each other with these cocks. Um, A lot of strange homoeroticism, but destructive kind of masculine tendencies portrayed in this way. But then in between cockfights, they're like, oh, yeah, but you can come over to my place and have lunch. (laughs) Like like they're buddies, but they're also obsessed with this hyper specific form of competition Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and two-lane blacktop and cockfighter both have that but what i'm noticing from watching his earlier films from the corman era that i'd never seen is some of those themes seem to like be there from the beginning which is pretty interesting i have been meaning to see cockfighter for a long time but it just anytime i see because i feel like that's one of those movies where i mean monty hellman is a little bit of a vulgar auteur and i feel like i've seen people like talk about you know i don't know for a while cockfighter and like iguana and some of those later hellman movies have been kind of held up as like oh yeah you know these are sort of overlooked uh you know kind of film audit ish uh movies and I don't know. Cockfighter just always makes me think about like the second season of Eastbound and Down where Kenny Powers goes to Mexico and, and is cockfighting. Um, but it also makes me think about uh, the Claire Denis movie, No Fear, No Die. And I feel like there's a lot of those kind of exploration of like masculine competitive tendencies that somebody like Hellman, I feel like does a little bit better than Claire Denis does. Um and i don't know uh also thinking about just like james taylor and songwriters of this era i also just found out um from friend of the show micah gottlieb tweeting about it that Joni mitchell like co-wrote the music for iguana which i didn't know previously and is and is kind of wild um but just a person who worked with a lot of interesting people and i mean seth you mentioned uh also, before we were recording the Muhammad Ali movie that he finished, The Greatest, where Ali plays himself. And also, it's the movie that um, The Greatest Gift of All, that song is originally from, not the Whitney Houston version, but it's like mm-hmm. George Benson, I think, originally. But yeah, that song is from that movie, too, <laughs> which is so weird. Gotcha. Goodness. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch that one because Muhammad Ali is like one of my favorite like historical figures. Mm-hmm. 
but and he also has like a crazy filmography but i just haven't gotten around to it yet but yeah i know he finished shooting that for tom grease yeah i haven't seen uh iguana yet and i haven't seen the greatest or shatter which uh we were just chatting about but um it is interesting how many projects he was just kind of a part of for periods of time yeah and then at the end of his life uh he was just had an airbnb people what yeah he was i remember a couple of times people kind of going like semi-viral being like whoa like look it's monty hellman on airbnb and i think there's like a, a there's actually a really good interview uh on movie notebook from a few years back where some critic like stayed at his airbnb and interviewed him um and just kind of hung out with him which seems appropriate given the tone and content of his movies just a vibe or just a stoner hall of fame i would imagine he had that crazy hair too also yeah what a guy what a legend i'm gonna have to track down that interview because that sounds fascinating yeah that's a good good and we'll have to i always mean to like make sh more show notes and maybe i should do that but that's something to throw in some show notes something to link anyway seth i feel like uh you're what you wanted to talk about is almost kind of related to this because it's like physical uh oh yeah kind of sports and road trips and stuff. related and road trips too yeah uh but recently i watched both of the descent movies one and two. Oh, i didn't know that you watched the if... second one also mm -hmm. oh yeah i still have not well, seen those i mean they're well the first one is like it's pretty great it's directed by neil jordan you know, it's just a horror movie about people going down in the cave. They're just some serious cavers trying to discover a new cave system or something. And, of course, one of them, like, has trauma that happened a year before, so they go down in the cave. And, you know, you hear stuff, you see stuff. And I thought it was all going to be psychological, but then there's, like, these, like, golem-looking dudes yeah, down there. it's a little freaky. It's very it a very physically taxing movie. Yeah, it's super visceral. And then also by the end, like it starts off and it's just so like that muted mid 2000s, like metal blue, like digital mm -hmm. look on everything. But then by the end, like all the different rooms and set pieces and everything and images alter between like bright red from like flares or like bright green from flares. It's like it's nuts. Yeah. And then so after that. I found out that there was a second one that was directed by the editor of the first movie. And I want to damn that's kind of wild movie really quick just to, sh to talk about what he's edited because he's very successful. But this is the only movie he ever directed. But he edited like Snatch, Layer Cake, 127 Hours, uh, Train Spotting or the sequel to Train Spotting. Wow. I guess. He's a real Brit. Mm -hmm. Through and through. Um. But yeah, apparently Neil Jordan didn't want to direct a sequel, so the editor did. But it's kind of interesting because the whole movie is just like kind of reconsidering the first movie in some ways. Because in one part, it's like the editor kind of reapproaching the movie they worked on the first time. But also the sequel to this is like, so, you know, it's a horror movie. One person survives at the end. And then the second one picks up two days after they get out of the cave and everybody's searching for the missing people that were in their hiking party but they're like still within this like window of this traumatic event where they don't remember anything. So everybody 
like the park services search and rescue party are like we're just going to take this traumatized person back into the cave oh my god to jog their memory and so it's a you end up kind of like reliving the first movie as well wow a little halloween 2 vibes yeah for sure uh maybe more interesting than like great but if you like the first one maybe watch the second one i mean Um, that is something that's just like generally like textually interesting to me about horror sequels is that like whether or not they explicitly you know are about like reliving what's happened to a person or people in the in a very literal way like the descent to um yeah is it called like the descent to or is it the descent to part two okay because the descent to is like a funny title to me it's like the descent to where oh yeah well, another thing that's funny, like an actual like in movie way of reconsidering the first one is that they find the handy cam that somebody brought on the first journey and was recording the whole time. Wow. And then they start watching the foot. You know, it's in movie found footage. Yeah. Love it. Does it. Yeah. Does it recut uh, footage from the first film or does it like restage those events? Uh, they reinsert a couple shots. Sometimes it's just like flashback, um, you know, all that stuff. But. I recognize a few things because we, the people I was with watched them night after night. This all happened because I went to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky <laughs> Wow, with, with some friends. And then we go in this, the longest cave in the world. And they're like, we got to watch this movie about monsters living in a cave. Is it truly a mammoth cave? I mean, it's, they call it the longest hole for a reason. The longest hole. My God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because. I the first like when I first ever heard of the descent was like around the time it came out in the mid to late 2000s and I was a kid like in Texas and my dad and I like went hiking and we ended up going to some random cave and I remember going to the cave and they had like a poster advertising for a screening of the descent in the cave And I just remember seeing that poster with like the bodies, the women's bodies, like making a skull Mm -hmm. and being horrified by it. Because I was just like very horror averse at a young age. And it took me many years to get into horror movies. And I didn't watch them. I was just like terrified by promotional materials. I was horrified by like what I imagined from posters and trailers and commercials and stuff. And that was just like something that just like stuck in my brain was the poster for The Descent. And then I eventually saw it a couple years ago pretty good movie yeah but nothing on that poster (laughs) goodness i need to check them out yeah yeah they're they're worth checking they're a good time at least the second one is it's a it's a a rich text i'll just leave it at that makes you want to take a shower real dirty Mm -hmm. absolute dirt vibes the only other real noteworthy thing that has come up recently for me is i mentioned I went on this thing to Mammoth Cave and I remember this really old adventure game, like one of the first adventure games is called Colossal Cave Adventure. And a while back I'd read that it was like based on a real life cave. Um, and so after I went on this tour at the national park and stuff, I started looking it up cause I was like, I feel like it was probably Mammoth Cave and it turns out it was. So that was kind of interesting, but it's just a text-based game. It's just these people who are avid cavers. Apparently there's a large crossover between those kind of people and programmers so they just made a, a text-based that makes adventure sense. game off this cave. But then they had like magic and stuff like that. And there's all this drama about the programmer who made it. 
actually stole his ex-wife's like cave discoveries or used them as like the source material to make the game because his ex-wife was the one who actually discovered a link that basically doubled the length of the whole cave and made it the longest one in the world i don't know wow the woman who entered a hole and left a cave yeah yeah but i mean it's a super interesting story if you ever want to look into any of it there's this great article by claire evans uh, about patricia crowther who is the the woman who discovered the link in the cave and then divorced her husband and he made a very successful video game out of it <laughs> wow but that's about all i got yeah i don't know i keep talking about physical activity and uh things mm-hmm. that are somewhat sporting related and over the past several weeks since we recorded our last episode i have kind of stopped watching a lot of movies and stopped watching a lot of other television and pretty mm-hmm. much only started watching wrestling um it kind of happened accidentally. You know, I've been a casual wrestling fan yeah. since around 2016. Seth and I, you know, we got into it around the same time together. Yeah. A little bit. and Just accidentally becoming a wrestling fan. Accidentally. Sometimes it happens. That's how it always works. And, you know, I had always, you know, watched the major pay-per-views and stuff. Kept up with it a little bit but was always nervous about getting too into it because I was just like, this will, there's so much, this will consume all of my attention if I do. And for some reason it just, uh, it just clicked. I just, I don't know, you know, I, yeah. I got the Peacock trial for WrestleMania 37. Oh my God. And the free trial turned into a full subscription as happens, yeah. but it's a pretty good streaming service. You know, they got, they yeah. got Columbo. They got the office. In addition to wrestling. Yeah. They got some classics. <laughs> what can I say? Um, Astro, have you ever watched wrestling? Yeah. So, um, I, I grew up around a lot of people that were, have been lifelong wrestling fans, but I never liked it as a kid. So like my younger brother, uh, my best friend, both of my best friends, um, in like elementary school, um, mm-hmm. just huge into wrestling. So it was just ambiently everywhere mm-hmm. in my, um, yeah. in my school. Um, like half the kids had like stone cold t-shirts or, um, the attitude era, I think coincided yeah. with, with, uh, middle school. So it was just kind of everywhere and I never really liked it. I was yeah. always like, Oh, this is stupid. They're not, they're not really fighting. Um, yeah. I'm going to watch my Batman cartoons. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, but like we always had the toys at my house. Um, I remember really liking the Jake the Snake Roberts action figure because it came with a snake. And I was like, that is a sick toy snake. Wow. Um, and like, so yeah, it's just um, wrestling has been this huge part of my like growing up, but I never really liked it. And now as an adult, yeah. I've been wanting to maybe dip back in because seeing people on Twitter talk about it. Um, yeah. It's like, this seems like really fun. And I'm familiar with at least some of the, the plot lines that have been going on. Yeah, that's the the same thing. It's just seeing people post about it and just being like, wow, just like how insistent, consistently kind of like, uh, I don't know, just fascinating. A lot of it is from multiple levels. And that's just really what led me to getting into it was people posting. Yeah, but 
but Aster, I feel like your kind of mind being geared toward like, you know, Linda Hamilton's like body genres and stuff kind of lends itself very easily, I think, to to wrestling and some of the appeal of that. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a more, um, I don't know, kinetic version of my, like, I've always been obsessed with the X-Men. And as I get older, mm-hmm. I see them as these kind of parallel things. Um, bright costumes, this hyper-focus on bodies and shapes. And I don't know. It's mostly soap opera, like soap opera yeah. with, with fights. Um, yeah, and I think X-Men is kind of interesting, too, just because... You know, so many superhero movies or or comics do have that sort of emphasis on like a body changing or, you know, or your sort of body being outside of your control a little bit. Um, But a lot of times that's not like very central or just kind of like very incidental. And with X-Men, with just like the idea of like a mutant, you know, with somebody who's like born with something and not like necessarily like endowed at some point in their life like it's just kind of a very different lens through which to view those kind of characters i feel like and i feel like just with how much wrestling emphasizes changing your body changing your persona changing your name at various points like just it sort of coincides with that with like that sort of idea of super heroics you know a little bit like of like uh i don't know just like how these like i don't know just sort of like the body as like a, a, a an and identity sort of appears parallel things sort of as sort of like living a little bit and sort of fluid like that's just something i feel like i notice so much with wrestling is just like how the people playing these characters and the characters are both sort of like evolving and changing over time and um and it's fascinating too watching it through like watching so much of it like in quick succession that covers a period of years and seeing just how pop culture at large evolves. Like it's been kind of similar to like recently, like binging a lot of the Simpsons where it's like, sometimes I'm watching this, like not because the quality is amazing, but it's just kind of like becomes a like anthropological study almost of just like seeing how the music changes or seeing political shit happen, like watching Hulk Hogan and the Sergeant Slaughter storyline where Sergeant Slaughter like defects to the Iraqi side and there's this photo like photo of him with Saddam and stuff and seeing the Gulf War sort of channel through that and then also like like the like Rodney King uh beating happens and the LA riots happen and there's a lot of fucked up shit that gets said like you know you have the wrestler big boss man who's a literal cop like with a nightstick um who's been around for years before that but obviously that comes up uh pretty obvious like directly like you know with with Rodney King um and so just seeing all these things things kind of happen in the background seeing celebrities change over the years like wrestlemania one has muhammad ali and liberace and then later on you've got like willie nelson singing america the beautiful and then it pivots eventually to like kid rock and florida and and just becomes way more like very like mainstream pop as opposed to the sort of glitz and pomp and circumstance and more like las vegas like boxing match sort of vibe that it was trying to go for in the 80s um i don't know i guess i've i've seen so much of it and so much of it has kind of blurred together and a lot of it is kind of on the same level of quality or like not maybe amazing but um i don't know really the like match that has just like i watched it yesterday and it just like is maybe the most 
one of the the greatest pieces of sports entertainment I've ever seen. Um, but it was the career ending match between Macho Man Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior. And I feel like Macho Man is a wrestler, you know, that people who are not even wrestling fans just sort of know by cultural reputation. And like, he's one of yeah. the few really like crossover sort of wrestling celebrities. Yeah, um, he's like immortalized in Skyrim mods and stuff. Yeah, lots of references in rap music. You know, he had the Slim Jim commercials. He's just sort of a figure. And, you know, the the macho man, like that that whole voice and everything and the fucking fringe and the cowboy hat and the pop and circumstance theme and all of that is just like he's just so compelling. And also finding out a little bit more about him and how he was like slightly smaller than a lot of the other guys at that time. Um, so he, you know, he sort of compensated for that with the showmanship and with the persona and a lot of it too is sort of owed to his manager in story in ring manager and real life wife, Elizabeth, the queen of wrestling. She's a really integral part of it too. And it's sort of fascinating that part of his thing for a while was like, he was like the respecter of women because Elizabeth managed him and, um, and so there's this like multi-year storyline basically leading up to this match where, you know, Elizabeth was managing him, Macho Man and Hulk Hogan were opponents, but then they become friends and they team up as the mega powers tag team managed by Elizabeth. Everybody's got matching golden red costumes. Looks great. Not a Hulk fan. Fuck him. But it looks cool. Um, but then like uh, Elizabeth gets like attacked in the ring and Hulk is the one who saves her and he carries her like unconscious body out of the ring. Like and Macho Man looks on in jealousy, starts thinking stuff's going on between the two of them. Eventually, not in real life yet, though, they did get divorced in 1994 um, and she married Lex Luger. But Macho Man and Elizabeth like break up in the storyline and she starts managing Hulk. And then Hulk and Macho Man start feuding even more. And eventually she's like, fuck both of you guys. You're both acting horribly. You're both using me as a pawn in your game. I don't want to work in wrestling at all anymore. So she quits. And then Hulk like beats Macho Man. And Macho Man has also gotten together with the sinister, uh, sensational Sherry, who's just like all decked out in sequins and rhinestones. And she's just cackling and mean all the time. And horrible and uh so he's just gone this like full heel turn and and so the ultimate warrior macho man match um ultimate warrior is a wrestler i do not like he's super boring he's got a hype theme he runs out really fast he's got face paint i get white kids in the 80s liked him but trash dude in real life and no interesting character just a look but he's actually really good in this match and he comes out then Macho Man comes out. Macho Man does not realize that Elizabeth is like in the back of the arena and she's kind of hiding. She's like, they're like, oh, Miss Elizabeth is here. Queen Elizabeth is here. But she's sort of like, you know, sort of a little shy. She's, she doesn't want to be seen. Macho Man doesn't know she's there. Match is going on for a while. Both these dudes are slugging it out. They're getting exhausted. They're like, we can't beat the other. There's no clear advantage here. We're both at the same level. We're both greats. Ultimate Warrior tries to pin Macho Man. Macho Man busts out and Ultimate Warrior starts like screaming to the heavens and like raising his hands in the air. And the announcers are like, he's he's talking to the gods. He's talking to the warriors like and he starts like speaking to his hands and he's like, what do you want me to do? Like, what is my destiny? Am I meant to lose? Am I meant to walk away? Am I meant to give up my career? And he starts like yelling at his hands and then he's like listening to his hands talk to him and he slowly steps towards the edge of the ring, lifts the ropes up and the referee's like no don't do it you're gonna forfeit your career and he steps out of the ring passes out on the mat macho man has been passed out but then gets up 
pulls Ultimate Warrior by the hair, puts him over the barricade. He's going to, you know, jump on him. Of course, Ultimate Warrior rolls out. And then like two or three times, Ultimate Warrior pulls Macho Man back into the ring, clothesline him. Every time Macho Man rolls out of the ring and he pulls him back. Finally, the third time this happens, Macho Man is just passed out. So Ultimate Warrior pins him and defeats him, not by like getting on his body, but just literally putting his foot on his stomach and then just count, you know, the ref counts to three. Macho Man can't even move. Ultimate Warrior puts his crazy fringe jacket on, walks out and leaves. Sensational Sherry runs in the ring. She's screaming at Macho Man. She starts kicking him, assaulting him, berating him. And Elizabeth, they start cutting to Elizabeth and she's like freaking out a little bit. She's like, oh, you know, covering her mouth. Oh, my God. You know, like and she's like, she's like, I don't you know what's what's Elizabeth going to do? And she runs into the ring. She grabs Sherry, throws her out. The ref like is trying to pull Sherry back, kicks her out of the arena. Macho Man is so passed out. Elizabeth starts touching him and he's like snapping at her because he doesn't know what's going on. He thinks he's being attacked again. He doesn't even know who is attacking him. Finally. He gets up and he realizes what's been going on. He realized it was Sherry who was attacking him. He realized it was Elizabeth who was protecting him. And they stare at each other for like a minute and they're circling around the ring. Elizabeth's like crying. She's got her arms outstretched. Macho Man's just like covering his face. He's like, what do I do? Like, do I go back to her? Like, what's going on? And, and the announcer's Gorilla Monsoon is like, she loves him. She loves him so much. Does he love her? I think he loves her. And then they finally just run in and embrace each other and... Macho Man picks Elizabeth up. They're spinning around and the pomp and circumstance theme hits. Everybody's crying. They cut to like five different women in the arena who are just full on mascara streaked sobbing at this reunion. That has been the culmination of a multi-year storyline. It's beautiful. And then Elizabeth, wow. you know, because she was his manager, she would always lift the ropes up for Macho Man to get out after the matches. So she goes to do that. And then Macho Man's like, no, 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 no. And then they're like, oh, for the first time ever, he's going to lift the ropes for her. And he is such a gentleman, lifts the ropes for Elizabeth. Elizabeth gets out and then Macho Man stands in the last ring, you know, in the ring for like the last time. And it's looking around and it's just like, wow, just like the literal soap opera, the melodrama. It's all popping. Just beautiful. A pinnacle of the form, I think. Um, changed my life. I was yeah. honestly almost yeah. in tears. Avengers could never. No, they couldn't. They think the MCU is on that level of serialized storytelling, but it will never be because there is no, you know, nobody cares about what's going on in Chris Evans' life. But Macho Man, you know, you got the real. <laughs> exactly. All committed. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Then now forever. Yeah. That being said. I feel like a good wrestling is honestly kind of a good lead in to our topic today because this filmmaker is very interested often in physique, in masculinity, in homoeroticism. In yeah. Warrior gods, the ultimate warrior, Leonidas, um, <laughs> Zack Snyder, himbo King, mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. You know, Snyder is somebody who has been a perpetual source of discourse, I think, mm -hmm. for, I mean, for many years. Yeah. Visual but effects innovator, I would say. He, yeah. You know, he dropped the Snyder cut on us this year on HBO Max, and he also has new film on Netflix, Army of the Dead, coming soon in May this month, the month that we're now in. I thought it was still April, to be honest, for a second. Um, 
And where do you begin with the Snyder Cut? Yeah, I don't know. Astro, you know, uh, we, we asked you to be on because I know that you are a, a uh, I don't know if, if fan, fans, you know, fan is, is the right word, but I guess, you know, as a study, you're a student of Snyder, I feel, um, and uh, have some of the more interesting and insightful takes on his work, I think. Um, I really enjoyed your, your recent review of the Snyder Cut. Um, mm-hmm. So what I just, you know, what when did you first kind of get, you know, he's somebody who's been obviously like a major kind of movie Hollywood figure for a while. 300 is a movie that like even if people didn't see it, it just was such a kind of force in like the mid 2000s. It's kind of hard not to like have an opinion or some sort of encounter with Snyder, I feel like if you're watching movies. But what sort of, you know, what was your first like engagement with his work? What sort of drew you to his work initially? Yeah, um, I think I, when I first saw, or Dawn of the Dead, uh, his remake came out um, the year I graduated high school and then um, started undergrad. And I remember mm-hmm. loving it um, when I first saw it. Um, that was a film I really liked. And uh, then I've just kind of followed his film since then. But starting with The Round Watchmen, I kind of fell out with him. I just kind of stopped being interested in his work. Um mm-hmm. So I wasn't a fan for his whole career. Um, mm-hmm. I skipped Legends of the Guardians when it came out, but I did see Sucker Punch. And then it, was, it wasn't it was until Batman vs. Superman that I kind of came back around to him. When I saw Man of Steel, um, I was definitely in the column of people that are like, this is bombastic and silly and like on the nose. Mm-hmm. And Which, sure, those are legitimate um, descriptions of his cinema, yeah. but um, not denying that. But I didn't like it at all. And then it may have been like reading other people uh on like film twitter or letterbox talking about batman versus superman and that really um piqued my interest in reassessing his films and so uh watching batman versus superman especially the uh the extended cut which i think is Mm -hmm. is the preferred cut uh in my opinion um i really just kind of fell in love with that film um and then, sorry, I, I realize I'm going like chronologically through his entire career. Um, um, that's fine. No, that's mode. okay. And then I saw the Justice it's League, uh, the Justice League, as it is called, uh, in wow. theaters. Yeah. Um, did not did not care for it, but um, was excited to see uh, the Snyder Cut when it came out. So I'm kind of like a born again fan, I guess is the <laughs> the best way to put it. I still am not a fan of all of his films. Um, yeah. I think his career really gets great with Man of Steel, which I now love. So I complete 180 on that one. Um, but yeah, so I guess it started with Dawn of the Dead and kind of being really into those, that wave of uh, zombie movies in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them kind of pastiche um, odes to previous zombie films, but um, like Shaun of the Dead and... Um, the first Resident Evil movie, which you you talked about, uh, PWSA last episode, um, and then the late late Romero films. Sorry, mm-hmm. oh, Twenty Eight Days Later. That's the other one. I was like blanking. Oh on. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I was trying. I was like, yeah. I was trying to think because that that was just yeah. such a. I mean, and I mean, then sort of culminating in The Walking Dead or now TWD, which I feel like yeah. it's like one of those acronyms like WWE or like FFA. That's just like what is it? I feel like it's like a that's there's a term for that it's like a redundant acronym or something like that where it doesn't mean anything anymore i feel like that's uh 
what The Walking Dead has become. And it's quite a zombie of a show, if you will. <laughs> Keep Staggering signs. on forever. Yep. Yeah. I was also thinking about uh, Zombieland when you said you're talking about. Yeah. That early wave. That's like more like what, 2009 or something yeah. like that. But yeah. And then and then Zombieland 2 uh, in 2019, I guess, which when that movie came out, also a lot of jokes about like, what of this undead franchise? <laughs> That's the great thing about zombie movies and writing about them is just there's so much potential for like both sort of Gene Shalit-esque one-liner quips, but also uh, I think it's just a lot of rich subtext and it's just a great sort of metaphorical lens to examine a lot of things in particular, just like genre and um I feel very similarly to what you're saying, Aster, about being sort of a born again fan. I mean, I wasn't really I think that like when his when he was sort of first on the rise, I was kind of like. I well, I didn't see his movies early on because at that time I was still not quite allowed to watch rated R films growing up in a religious household. And those movies are like you know, hard R. Uh, but I was in very much in nerd culture at that time. And I was like, Oh yeah, I want to watch, you know, this guy who makes like Frank Miller adaptations. Like, yeah, I support him. Like I fuck with the vision or whatever. And, um, yeah. but then I think I kind of had a, you know, I was like, Oh, like I'm a serious cinephile now. And this is just like poopy blockbuster cinema. This is, and I had the same experience of first man of steel where I was just like, Oh, all of this, just the leveling of city blocks, you know, American imperialism. Oh. Literally, my first letterbox review is one and a half stars. And it says this shit looks like a five gum commercial. And I meant that at the time as an insult. And then watching it again, I was like, actually, that's a compliment. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like it's a much richer film than I gave it credit for in a much more thoughtful film. And it looks even kind of more thoughtful now, sort of seeing the full continuation of you know, seeing Batman versus Superman and the Snyder cut and more of kind of his extended vision. And also I will say to something that really like, I would encourage people to honestly check out is like in, you know, in addition to the Snyder cut, the sort of like the leaked sort of story notes for his kind of like culmination of the franchise with the two justice league sequels, which goes to some really sort of insane places. And obviously it's like not a kind of finished you know it's not a movie that exists and you're sort of left to piece it together as the fan as the the person you know in appreciating this work but i think that's one of the kind of just a sort of an interesting point about snyder is he's been one of these like you know seen as like a vulgar auteur or whatever who's like reclaimed by certain cinephiles or seen as this like big hollywood force you know with the snyder cut as someone who's who was able to get a major hollywood studio to like bend to his will a little bit you know people are like oh he is like the embodiment of like you know an, an auteur or something like that and also i think that kind of you know people have this sort of impression of him as like authoritarian or like fascist so i feel like because there is that sort of misinterpretation or misapplication of auteur theory where it sort of like treats the author as like authority or sort of thinks that that's what auteur theory is trying to do when really it's just more of a means of at least in its ideal form a means mm -hmm. of just kind of organization and like yeah. categorization really like i feel like um yeah. and so i feel like snyder has that reputation as this like the director but really when you think about it like there is something 
I think about his filmmaking that has a sort of collective impulse, but also in just the sort of fan engagement where people, you know, people say that like the Snyder cut campaign was like a fan harassment campaign. And, you know, maybe there were people who were mean on the internet, but obviously with all of the things that have come out since um, about Ray Fisher and Joss Whedon and all of that, there's definitely a different context. Also, I think with allowing Snyder to revisit a film he left because of real life tragedy and his daughter's death is like, really valid and important and the last thing is just you know it's just like it's a thing that exists because of kind of people because of fans asking for it and some people Mm -hmm. think that's like demanding but you know every blockbuster that comes out so many blockbusters people are like who is this made for why does this exist with the Snyder Cut we literally know who it exists for and why it exists and I think it's kind of beautiful in some ways that like these unfinished justice league movies that it's sort of left to be pieced together by Snyder fans, because like in justice league after Superman dies, you know, there's that quote on his like memorial. That's like, if you like want him or whatever, like look around you. And I feel like that's kind of what it's like about Snyder. Almost. It's like (laughs) about sort of like inspiring the fans to like, be part of the film itself and be part of the text and experience. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Long tangent, also, but the Snyder cut also in part exists for, to promote a new streaming service. You talked about Peacock being all on or WrestleMania being all on like NBC's new streaming service earlier. And yeah, it's also in part, I mean, it's a fan campaign, but also in part coinciding with like HBO max having like this streaming exclusivity for it. Yeah, so I think going off that, what I think is interesting is um, the way that the DC universe as a, you know, cinematic universe or whatever, but also as this kind of like branded content ecosystem of, um, you know, IP that HBO happens to own, um, deploying it in different ways, I think is interesting. And um, I'm interested in seeing, because obviously there are like these confining structures Um, And a lot of this stuff is motivated by commerce and the bad decisions of studio heads and stuff like that. Um, But I do think it is really interesting for me and what attracts me to Snyder's DC film trilogy or cycle or however many, if it ends up being more, um, is to see what he's capable of making within those confines. Um, So I think, you know, Nathan, going off what you were talking about with... uh, um, the different criticisms of Snyder, and a lot of them are just kind of, well, it's this big, big blockbuster commercial kind of superhero stuff, um, which, sure, a lot of it is not good. And I think a lot of the those criticisms are valid. Um, but I also think Snyder is genuinely a, a visionary filmmaker, and mm-hmm. he's really come into his own with these DC films. And um, not to discount his earlier films, I don't mean to suggest that they're all like bad or just building to something else, but... Um, I think, yeah, I think that there is this interesting question about the fans and how much control or input they actually have, because I don't think, Mm -hmm. uh, Warner brothers or HBO would invest or kind of seed that kind of ground to a, a groundswell of, you know, viral fans. Um, because it sets a precedent, but also like they probably factored in how successful it would be to a certain extent or i don't know just trying to get something interesting to draw people to the platform seems to be um kind of the impetus behind its existence 
Definitely. And I mean, I think it's sort of a similar like now Snyder has sort of started to capitalize on like the streaming ecosystem, which is interesting because he is very much. I feel like, a, a, you know, he's not an old guy, but he is now a middle aged filmmaker, even though he still has this kind of reputation as like the young jock bro, you know, on campus or whatever. Uh, but he's like in his fifties now. Um, but just coming from, you know, being such a like commercially oriented music video, commercial uh-huh. artist, um, and, and then doing, you know, all of these sort of comic book adaptations and just being a very sort of Hollywood filmmaker and being somebody who people are sort of really prize him as like, I don't know, just someone who is like capitalizing on like the possibilities of the big screen and the theatrical experience uh, in a way that a lot of other filmmakers making superhero movies don't really do. And um, so, but it's interesting to see him sort of shift from having a very sort of widescreen kind of work to something that is more at home on the small screen, which I think you kind of see in the sort of aspect ratio of the Snyder cut. Um, but also, you know, army of the dead is now going to be this whole like content ecosystem for Netflix. The movie's not even out yet. And then they've like started working on a prequel and there's going to be like anime series tying in with it. And I'm very interested just to see what it is exactly because it, you know, it is that sort of like returning to the dawn of the dead roots. And obviously with the title sort of like trying to carry a torch on of some kind from Romero, And I think he is in some ways a little bit, you know, very different from Romero, but there is some, maybe some kind of kinship in having very boldly capital letters, sometimes these sort of like political or social themes in these pop genre movies in a way that others aren't doing at that time. Um, And I think also, you know, you mentioned Aster, like having this whole DC universe tied into HBO max and, it's really interesting now because I think you go on HBO Max and you go to like S and you see all of these different variations and versions and takes and interpretations of Superman over the years. And I think what's interesting about Snyder is, is I felt this too when I first saw Man of Steel, but I've come to realize I think that people are like, oh, Snyder misunderstood Superman. He made him this sulking emo guy. Superman's supposed to be optimism, hope, a ray of sunshine whatever but superman is kind of more of a blank slate than like any other superhero really and he has been just sort of whatever the context of the time is or whatever the author has sort of interpreted him to be and i think snyder knows that as such a like nerd and so he knows that like his take on superman is not the only take like he's not necessarily trying to monopolize i think his vision i think in some ways you know, he's in some ways, you know, like he hasn't been as critical of like the Joss cut as others might be, you know, he's kind of kept a distance from it. And in some ways I feel like a part of that is just sort of like respecting different takes and interpretations. And he's such an, you know, an adapter and very conscious, I think of like the source text and source material. So I think there is a sort of interesting relationship with that sort of like the fidelity of characters or whatever, where, with somebody like Superman, the fidelity of that character is that there's like no, I don't know, there's not really like an one single, I feel like, kind of defined essence. I think Batman is different because you know, Batman comes literally from like detective comics. He's always kind of in that detective procedural sort of cop role. It's kind of hard to take him from that. 
whereas Superman can kind of exist at different points on a spectrum. And and Batman, as he exists in Snyder, he's just like a boss. He's just hiring contractors to do work for him that he can't do because he doesn't have like actual superpowers. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, I, sorry, Seth, I didn't mean to cut off, cut you off. Oh, okay. Uh, I was going to talk about Watchmen for a second and then compare and contrast. But while we're talking about all the superhero movies, though, I'm thinking about how the first Zack Snyder movie I saw, I think, was Watchmen, and I'd like. At the time when it came out, I'd like just read Watchmen and I didn't really know what to think. And I was like, I don't know if that's the greatest thing ever, but I don't want to read people on the Internet explaining to me why I'm wrong. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop. But then I saw the movie and it's weird because it's one of the more like literal adaptations of like a comic book I've seen. Like it's just frame recreation mm-hmm. for a lot of it. Obviously, parts of it are adapted for the movie and changed to maybe make more sense in that format or for some other choice. But um, as far as the images go and everything like that, he just is quite literally just like adapting what's on the page. And it seems like in his later like DC movies, there's a lot of other like really interesting considerations of like the frame, like obviously Snyder cuts four by three um, or even like Man of Steel. People I feel like know really well all these like different comparisons within the image of like Superman and Jesus and stuff like that. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think um, interesting to me about his first three films, two of which are these like, you know, basically lifting the compositions directly from the source material. Um, At the time, I recall thinking or reflecting on it, thinking it's like Snyder at the beginning of his career was always attached to these waves, like bursts in Hollywood. Like there was a a zombie fad of like films that happened for a, a brief minute. And then Sin City happened at this kind of same period where superhero movies were picking up. You were seeing a lot more of them from, you know, like um, Ang Lee's Hulk and Brian Singer's X-Men movies and the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. Um, but then films still weren't completely given over to like the influence of uh, the prequels and like how George Lucas, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like a, an Edison type changed how a lot of movies were made um, with digital cameras, the, his editing techniques and, um, you know, just, massively relying on green screen technologies and then with sin city there was this it seemed like this gimmick for a minute of comic books that look or comic book movies that look exactly like their comic book counterparts um and i think part of the reason why to go back to Watchmen, why i didn't like it when i first saw it was i was a huge alan moore nerd and so i was like going into it already like Mm -hmm. ready to pick it apart um oh yeah and then that my chemical romance desolation row cover hits yeah (laughs) Um, but i think uh you know you mentioned that cover seth and that is just sort of a really valuable lens to me i feel like that i thought about snyder's work through is just like him kind of as a cover artist in a lot of ways First, the the reason why I I sort of started thinking about this is just because there are so frequently like pop covers in his movies. I mean, from Dawn of the Dead, which has both the original disturbed version of Down with the Sickness at the end, but also uses the like Richard Cheese novelty big band cover, Um, you know, to Desolation Row, as you just mentioned, Sucker Punch, the soundtrack is like all mashups or covers in a very Moulin Rouge kind of fantastical jukebox musical way. Yeah, but also Watchmen like does like kind of the, the Vietnam period piece, like 
just like pastiche of different songs that came around at the time in their original versions too like i think all along the watchtower and times they're changing and stuff like that yeah and then you know there's like multiple versions of hallelujah in his movies and so i feel like that's sort of often sort of how he's sort of operating is like thinking about this like source material basically like a pop song and then sort of offering his take on it and sometimes that's like very close to the note and close to the letter and he is often sort of a basically an essentially an animated filmmaker i mean just with how much he leans into the artificiality and recreating the comic book frame and i mean there's obviously a lot of comparisons uh to anime and his work and i think he is a fan of anime and there's like there's a whole sort of like clip on youtube that's like a sequence from man of steel up against a clip from some anime that i had not seen um but it's like very obviously inspired by that and where was i going with that i don't know uh but he just i don't know he just seems like very <clears throat> generation I guess remix just talk yeah gen- well, generation remix mashup culture but also sort of a animator basically and the way that he often uses people is sort of as these like almost animated models just really glorifying bodies that are very kind of inhuman and very beautiful and whatever and very statuesque and um And I think there's an interesting kind of kinship where he is sort of, at least in 300, because 300 is, you know, sort of activated this wave of like very hyper artificial CGI driven and then like 3D converted swords and sandal and sword and sorcery movies. I mean, like Immortals, Clash and Wrath of the Titans, um, the Conan the Barbarian remake, like exodus gods and kings gods of egypt yeah i think ten thousand bc which is less like swords and sandals but yeah yeah and then like um and i mean sort of things like in that at least sort of mythic biblical ancient vein and you know the, the old order of the world. viking movies like pathfinder and outlander to kind of in this wave a little bit um and i feel like and prince of persia too also um Yes, the the Zemeckis Beowulf also. And I feel like there's kind of a connection where like you had right before 300 a sort of revival of like Gladiator, I think kind of, you know, inspired more like realistic historical dramas like Troy and Alexander, where it's very on location. And even in Alexander, it's very much like you have like these like labels on the screen during battle sequences to tell you like which legion or like phalanx it is. So you can like follow the battle from a very top down historical lens. And this in and, and 300, I was sort of thinking about the emphasis on like st- strategic tactics and how it seems like, you know, it's very bloody and hand to hand, but it also feels like a movie for people who like real time strategy games. Cause it is very much about the like Canyon using the environment, redoing these scenarios over and over again and kind of simulating battle. Um, but I feel like there's a connection between like, you know, the original sword and sandal movies, the Peplum movies were so like studio bound and artificial, you know, kind of starting out as like Italian fascist propaganda, but then being these huge exports from Italy to the rest of the world. Um and I sort of think about, you know, you brought up Aster Lucas and the prequels. And to me, I'm I'm fascinated by how there was this moment in 2000, in early 2000s when Gangs of New York and Attack of the Clones were like using 
the same soundstage in Italy because it was like the soundstage that had been used for all those Peplum movies and all these Italian epics. And that's why Scorsese wanted to film there. But then Lucas was using it. And, you know, Gangs of New York has like that very like recreated New York, like big sets, everything. It's very digital kind of movie at the same time. But and then Attack of the Clones is like, you know, first Hollywood movie entirely shot on HD. All these CGI backgrounds totally different. And it feels like a sort of passing of the torch. And I feel like 300 is a similar sort of thing where it's like going ancient, going mythic as a kind of very obvious Iraq war Bush era metaphor. Um, but it's also, I think, doing that. We've talked about this a lot in this podcast about how so often when trying to use or prove or showcase new technology, filmmakers like return to either the roots of early forms of cinema or like historical material. And I feel like 300 kind of does that too. Yeah. I think also uh, Frank Miller's source really lends itself to that style of filmmaking um, because the, the comic book itself is very sparse um, and um, you know, very sparsely narrated and mostly just compositions of images that stand in, um, for like larger events and stuff like that. But I think um, kind of going off this point with uh, with um, Lucas and this kind of technology, I think that, um, I don't know, it, it to me it sometimes seems like a return to a kind of 1930s, 1940s studio system where artifice was just accepted as part of the image. Um, and that's not to make a direct parallel and say like, yeah, the cinema of today is just as prolifically good as you know, the cinema of that that period, um, but I do think there's this, and I'm coming as a reformed person who used to hate computer animation, like oh, nothing looks real anymore, or they don't make them like they used to, which you know you still see a lot of those um, arguments, especially people my age. I I encounter a lot of people with those arguments, but I think Snyder, one of the reasons why his films stand out, even when I'm not like a huge fan of them or have very mixed feelings, like Watchmen, um, like 300. Um, is he seems to be one of the few filmmakers like um, Paul W.S. Anderson, who just seems to get working in this mode. Um, and Gore Verbinski, I think, too, is kind of, you know, um, The Lone Ranger is one that stands out to me where they they, they have a sense of um, kind of how to create a sense of grounding or structures, um, rules to their universes, because you can do anything with computer animation. And I think that's why a lot of films are received as like, kind of lifeless or not requiring very much, I don't know, cinematic vision because you can just do whatever you want on a computer. But I think that underplays how certain filmmakers are actually really, um, I don't know, adept or tuned into that technology and, and how to render those stories. And I think um, if I can keep going kind of down yeah. a 300 rabbit hole for a second, um, 300 is fascinating to me also because some of its sequences, Nathan, that you're talking about, like especially these battle sequences where he's, you know, using slow motion and creating these kind of tableaus, recreating moments of the comic book. Um, they're very like the rhythms of them are very beautiful. It's like a very, um, very well-made film in that regard. There are parts that I don't care for, like a lot of the stuff with the Senate um, with, I think, is it lean? Lena Headey and uh, McNulty from The Wire. I don't like that stuff. I think it's really clunky. It's also kind of ugly. It really mismatches um, the kind of visual style of all of the other scenes with the, the 300 Spartans themselves. Um, and it's also the only thing that's wholesale added um, that isn't in the comic book. Not that that matters. I'm not an adaptation purist. Um, 
by any sense, but um, I don't know. It was interesting when 300 came out. I remember a lot of arguments about it, um, about it basically reflecting American imperialism during the period of the Iraq war, which I think is a very, I, yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, the way it depicts, I don't know, in the way that like the white, kind of a white supremacist American mindset imagines itself as like Greeks and Romans, but no, no other members of the classical or the ancient world, really, those are, you know, very much othered. And it's interesting in 300, um, how it's like mostly British people playing, uh, playing Greek people, um, that kind of become these stand-ins for Americans in this very, I don't know. And you can say this about, um, Frank Miller's comic, very much romanticizing this like fascist mythos of how how we choose to remember Spartans and actual historical facts about them as well. Um, but then, yeah, I, oh, I think it's very telling. There's just a little moment in the beginning when <coughs> they're visited by the Persian emissary and they're like, oh, the Athenians, you know, like said no to the Persians and Leonidas is like, well, if those philosophers and boy lovers, you know, can stand against you, then surely we can. And it's just like, I feel like Spartans are not the, the ones to be like homophobic, you know, like just kind of like, Hmm, there's, there's some things going on in, in, in Sparta that are being kind of erased here um, to, to really sort of solidify that sort of connection of like, you know, Western hegemony as Sparta um, and as the victimized, like tiny warrior nation. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, like from a, a gender and sexuality analysis, um, a lens in 300, because you have this very like, camp homoerotica in much of it that is present in 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 the um, source material as well um that it doesn't really shy away from you know the the same-sex relationships that were prevalent in spartan society but yet there's this still this kind of masculinist version of acceptable homosexuality which in this way is like a homo nationalist kind of yeah we're gay but we're hyper masculine and the persians who not only are like racialized others, but the way Xerxes is portrayed as like this kind of gender fluid, disgusting, um, just perverse kind of figure. Um, yeah. Piercings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this kind of sexually fluid, um, and also like really, you know, heinous depictions of, of disabilities. Um, it just kind of this like ancient, you know, an older system of images that, um, I don't know, are pretty uh, reactionary. And Snyder doesn't really, um, I don't know, he just kind of leans into that wholesale. But you see that throughout some of his first three films, both Dawn of the Dead and Watchmen, there is this kind of casual homophobia um, in like some of the ways that I think in the, if I can shift to Watchmen for a brief second, um, how uh, like one of the criticisms I remember thinking when I saw it when it first came out in theaters was that it seemed to favor Rorschach more, which is an argument I've I've had with or I've come across from other people's interpretations as well, um, which kind of undermines some of the things that Alan Moore's text is doing by, you know, rather than just depicting Rorschach as this kind of right wing vigilante, um, it sympathizes with him somewhat. Um, but in the way that Snyder depicts Ozymandias, he very much is this kind of like queer coded 80s pampered sissy figure. 
um, who is also just totally genocidal. Um, and, you know, there's the line that Rorschach has, you know, Ozymandias might be homosexual, better check in on this. And you can, like, overlook it as part of the landscape of the film in these different perspectives. But I definitely think there is this, you know, kind of right-wing streak through a lot of Snyder's films that he maybe tampers or changes in certain ways with his DC films, not to excuse it. But it's definitely, like, low-hanging fruit in his early films before Legends of the Guardians. Yeah, and earlier you mentioned, Nathan mentioned that 300 is a movie that you can like not see and still have kind of absorbed or at least gotten the effect of just culturally. And I haven't actually seen it, but I mean, in our show notes, we have a link to the 300 workout on webmd.com. And I remember like movies like Epic Movie and like spoof movies like that. Mm-hmm. There's just so many jokes mm-hmm. about the 300 Sparta kick. Yeah, I mean, there was Meet the Spartans, that movie, that parody. And I think that also, you know, it's the the emphasis, you know, I included that workout diet thing because, you know, there was such an emphasis on like the body culture of the movie. And there's literally mm-hmm. this image in the movie of Gerard it's Butler. The abs industrial complex of like the mid 2000s. Literally just Gerard Butler looking out on this vista, butt ass naked, like shining, glistening body. And I thought it was kind of interesting thinking about Gerard Butler as like an actor because, I mean, now he's sort of prolific, like often dtv but just these yeah. spectacle genre movies i mean the the fallen trilogy you've got yeah the fallen movies den of thieves you know is is a movie that people like but also then you have like geostorm and these sort of disaster movies and stuff but the movie that i feel like i knew him for before 300 and other people maybe was joel schumacher's phantom of the opera and it's just sort of interesting Hell to yeah. think about two of his big kind of breakout movies being these very like queer camp movies essentially um and so just thinking about the sort of emphasis on body bodies and kind of and uh physicality in 300 and also i mean zach snyder too is somebody who's kind of a self-professed workout junkie very built and chiseled has very tatted up and kind of thinks of himself i think sometimes physically in line with some of his his characters and i think that's something that's very interesting is you just maybe most apparently in a movie like Sucker Punch, but throughout all of his movies, you see very clearly his fetishes uh, and interests, both like as a nerd and sort of like genres he likes, comics, games, anime, whatever, but also the sort of sexual desires, the sort of underlying things that inform him as a person and drive him. Um, And I think just having that sort of very blatant kind of connection to like just unmasking the like sexual kind of drive of nerd culture is really interesting because I feel like there's a way in which like nerd culture is so much about like control, which is what kind of like, you know, making something a fetish object is, is kind of a means of control. And I think it's just sort of like, I think Snyder makes people uncomfortable because he sort of makes some of those impulses of nerd culture, um, a little more obvious um than than other people um there's one thing oh i also think one thing that's interesting about you know just mentioning the like cultural reach of 300 is i feel like it was a very kind of early like memed movie to me like one of the first videos i remember seeing on youtube was the like 300 pg version um but also i think you know just like leonidas reaction gifts quotes from the movie you know tonight we dine in hell this is sparta like whatever 
just you know became kind of memes and i uh and similarly you know like clash of the titans had like released the kraken i think was a sort of similar like 300 like meme but i think it's interesting mm-hmm. that a movie that's so much about like the frame and the image is also something that really lended itself to being memed and then turned into images and spread through them um yeah i i have some thoughts on that topic if uh i may enter yeah. it um so i i think nathan you're really onto something with that because i remember the gifts and the memes from like somethingawful.com and uh you're the man now dog which was um if that's still a thing or if people remember that at all but there was a lot of like remixed gif jokes and stuff like that but i also think that um leonidas as uh was our nathan you already mentioned or maybe this was you seth um about like the the proliferation of like classic and ancient world and prehistoric action stories that emerged in this period both from that mode of filming like green screen heavy productions but also this kind of like older world um i think a lot of those had a lot of traction in some of these forums especially like 4chan um the uh, something awful forums and stuff like that because there is this like ambient interest among what eventually would become kind of like the alt-right or right-wing online um, belief systems this fascination with um, their like a very narrow idea of the ancient world and the classical world like the way things used to be when men were still men and you had to struggle against the elements in order to like prove yourself and you know it wasn't all these like gay rights and racial integration and all the stuff that's destroying society now like those right wing or even like social infrastructure yeah exactly so like this kind of anarcho com or anarcho capitalist to uh like libertarian um belief systems that kind of took shape in these forums all kind of have this shared fascination with um with the ancient world. And so when these movies come out, their images lend themselves to being poached and turned into yeah. like reactions. Like you see it all the time with, uh, you know, you can have an anti-Nazi movie um, that where the Nazis are clearly the villains, but any images of Nazis doing anything that a Nazi could think is cool, then becomes a gif and a reaction within this kind of racist ecosystem. And you see that a lot with 300 and other films like that. So it's not necessarily a criticism of the text itself, but that the internet, especially like the networked web 2.0 lends itself to just taking what you want from a cultural text and then like transforming it into the statement that you want to make. And I think 300 really proliferated because it was at the crossroads of all of these things, the, you know, the beginnings of web 2.0, the beginnings of these forums that would have like massive influence on like our culture and, and politics in the in the coming decades um mm-hmm. which i well we already oh sorry no 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 that was it i was done i didn't know if i was interrupting you but we already talked about how much of his career is kind of like the story of it's kind of written by like fan participation and i feel like that influences the way so many people think of him because of the way that his movies also do very easily lend themselves or aren't tampered down in this way that allow like outside people to grab and remix what they want yeah and i mean i think that like he sometimes with that sort of being too faithful to the text it sort of lends himself to like in the case of someone like frank miller who you know would go on to in a few years after 300 write the comic holy terror 
um, which was originally supposed to be Holy Terror Batman with Batman taking on Al-Qaeda. Um, you know, somebody who's a pretty straight up fascist nationalist, you know, if Snyder is like just kind of deferring to the text and just interest in the, in the images, then obviously that kind of lends itself to a certain kind of worldview. And he's just going to sort of uncritically propagate that a little bit. Um, and, you know, he's had this sort of long-term interest in adapting the Fountainhead. So people are like, oh yeah, he's a Randian. Like he's, he's a fascist individualist and you know, the kind of the way that he sort of, thinks about icons and heroes maybe to sort of lend itself to that analysis. So I can sort of see that in some ways, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Like, I don't know, you know, he said that he has moved away from the fountainhead movie a little bit because he feels like it's a too conservative time and that it would come off wrong. Like, you know, he feels like that it would seem like, I don't know. It kind of makes it seem like some of the things he said, like it would maybe be a slightly more like critical adaptation than just sort of like preaching Rand. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, but I feel like a lot of times, like the way he's thinking about heroes is not in this, like, look at these gods, like look at Atlas, you know, holding the world up on his shoulders, but more to what I was saying earlier about that line about Superman, about like, you know, if you want, if you need him, like look around you where it's supposed it's, it's more of a, like not saying Snyder's a communist, but almost more as like treating superheroes as like revolutionary icons that are not just powerful beings in and of themselves, but have the ability to inspire others. And I think you especially see that in the notes of like what justice league was going to lead to, where it was going to end with basically this like Lord of the Rings style conclusion where the justice league has inspired all of the armies of, humans and undersea people and outer space and stuff to like join together against dark side um and rise up as a collective which is kind of like fuck yeah okay like i'm into that like i need to see that movie but i think he he just i don't know he just has a fascination with like images of power which just sort of naturally leans itself to a certain kind of response and critique i think it's really interesting that another artist who has a kind of complicated relationship to uh, authority and power grimes has two songs on her last album which are sort of weirdly connected to justice league because she has a song called dark side like with the spelling of the character dark side and there's another song called new gods which is you know the jack kirby comic which i think is like a huge fundamental influence on Snyder's very sort of like spiritual cosmological <laughs> view of heroes um but I don't know, just kind of interesting that there's like that. I don't know if maybe she's maybe she's into Snyder, but just I don't know, you know, her song We Appreciate Power is a very kind of Snyder-esque kind of affectation. Well, I think with Snyder's depiction of like heroes or super people or I agree with you that it is more complicated, even though I think there's definitely ideological elements within his films that are what I would consider you know, right wing or definitely conservative. Yeah. And, but I also, and I don't mean this as like a postmodern deflection of any criticism, but I think honestly, a lot of his films are ideologically incoherent and they lend enough to, you know, you can, I think Jonathan Rosenbaum has written about this where like the way certain films are made that you can just kind of take what you want out of it and compliment yourself for, for kind of mm -hmm. understanding it um, and kind of projecting what you want. But also I think, viewers 
um, and I'm not trying to defend Snyder's politics through recourse to viewers, but I do think reader or viewers take, you know, they, they co-produce the meaning of the text through watching it and kind of take what they want, you know, the taking gifts from like 300 mm -hmm. being one example. Um, but I also think there are other elements like thematic elements throughout his films that it's not just this like obsession with heroes or whatever. Um, most of his films in some way feature like isolated groups of people um, who definitely fall into that kind of Randian, you know, superior people. Yeah. Um, and like the guardians of Gahul, you know, yeah. Special they have people to go find the owls. The yeah. And go, you know, risk your life for the peasants. This kind of like, they're up here and you're down there. Yeah. Um, and it's also a lot of like the loneliness of that, which Nathan, you had mentioned that with Superman, you know, um, the isolation that comes with being either a survivor a la Dawn of the Dead or, you know, um, standing up for what's right is kind of like this loose theme of, you know, in 300. Um, mm -hmm. But he he seems drawn to like the isolation of that. But sometimes his depiction of it does, isn't that simple. Like I'm thinking of Michael Jordan's playground <laughs> and and also the scene in Justice yeah. League where like the scene in Justice League is um, at, at the introduction of Wonder Woman where, you know, she saves the, the kids, the school group from the terrorist. And that little girl's like, can I be like you when I grow up? And she's like, you could be whatever you want. And I remember this meme someone put out where her response, um, Wonder Woman's response is, no, I'm a god. Which is this, which I thought that I was watching. It's like, no, you can't be Wonder Woman because she's innately superior because of what, you know, the backstory or whatever. And, but in Michael Jordan's playground, there's this interesting dynamic where it's like Michael Jordan is set up by all the talking head interviews of other like, you know, coaches and players and stuff like that saying Michael Jordan, like has no weaknesses. He is in a league of his own. Like there's just no like um, <laughs> being on his level. And that's kind of the theme of the entire thing, but mixed with this scene where Michael Jordan is with this kid who was cut from his high school basketball team, like bummed out and practicing. And Michael Jordan's like, I was cut from my high school basketball team. You just have to keep practicing and working mm -hmm. hard and have heart, which I think there's truth to that. I'm not like knocking the message of like inspiring people to work hard for what you want or to like practice to hone some kind of skill or talent. But it's also like, counterbalanced by this focus on iconic and mythical people who are like at the top of their game or exist in a realm that can't be reached. You know, um, obviously Michael Jordan is human, but his talent and his place in pop culture kind of puts him in a place that very few people ever experience. Mm -hmm. And then Superman, obviously a fictional character, but you know, no one can come close to him except other Kryptonians like General Zod. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of interesting the way that his interest in power um, or the unique, the gifted, however the film frames it, is interesting in his focus on sometimes their loneliness or mm -hmm. the way people react to them is either fearful or reverent, which is very much all over the DC trilogy, that kind of dichotomy of reverence and fear. Yeah, I think that, um, well, reverence is an interesting word just because there is that like such kind of religious impulse. And it's really interesting to me. I found out in, in an interview with him that he was raised Christian scientist um, and said that like he saw Star Wars and it just had this sort of like more kind of religious spiritual impact on him than just like pure sort of film experience just because of being in that very sort of living religious world 
Um, and you know, the sort of cla- like a, a classic kind of excuse for people who want others to take superhero and comic book media seriously as though like these are our modern myths, you know, these are the stories we tell ourselves. But Snyder's really the only artist who like sincerely grapples with that at like face value of like what does it mean to sort of engage with these figures as like religious icons, as truly mythic figures. And I mean somebody who he kind of reminds me a lot, which I feel like people would give me shit for this, but I don't know. Snyder is an anime fan, um, but he reminds me a lot of uh, Hideki Anno of Evangelion, who Anno's first movie was like a Ultraman fan film, basically, that he made in film school. And, you know, he went on to to you know, make Shin Godzilla and Shin Ultraman is, is coming out and so has like worked on these iconic properties that he grew up with as a fan but does sort of approach them from this somewhat more critically minded way where it's like he's still a a real genuine enthusiast of this but also sort of grappling with like larger societal implications of what these characters and icons and figures mean Um, and sometimes there's a sort of a little bit of a like you know, at least with like Evangelion, where it's just sort of grabbing these symbols from like Christianity and other religious traditions, where it's sometimes not always 100% coherent, but just sort of the emotional affect is so intense that it has like an emotional coherence. You know, things don't always like equal, like one another, like really lining up in terms of symbolism being like on the nose necessarily. But it just sort of gives you a sort of emotional force and Snyder is, is, is maybe much more blunt, but I feel like he similarly just sort of goes to history, goes to the legacy of media and just sort of mines these like figures and, and images that he thinks have some kind of real potence or strength or resonance and is sort of exploring the affect of that. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to compare like one comparison between those two that jumps out is like a movie like man of steel which people criticized at the time for so much of like how destructive it was and showing maybe like a reality of what this might actually look like. But then with Hideki Anno, he made Shin Godzilla, which is a Godzilla movie that is just all about the bureaucracy of like disaster response. And it's just people faxing papers back and forth, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how we can actually respond to this thing that we've never really seen before. Yeah, and I mean, which is a, a kaiju coming out of the ocean, and then Batman versus Superman, you know, is basically all about the critical response to Man of Steel and kind of like Batman being like, "Oh, Superman fucked up. He destroyed too much. Like he needs to be reined in." And the government also sort of thinking that, which, like, again, that's kind of a classic superhero sort of storyline or trope that yeah, kind of thing happens the, all the, the time badge trope but. yeah but it definitely feels like it has sort of larger implications within the sort of modern superhero context and also within the specific criticisms of man of steel i remember literally seeing mm-hmm. the first trailer for bvs and being like oh so this ba- so bruce wayne is like people who didn't like man of steel okay i see what you're doing here yeah, I think for me, a lot of that, like the the Rosetta Stone for me and kind of coming back to uh, Snyder with the DC films is like revisiting John Borman's Excalibur after learning that it, it was, um, it is like one of Snyder's favorite films, um, if not his favorite. Um, and echoing um, one of the quotes that you just shared, Nathan, I think uh, Snyder said about Excalibur um, that it's like the perfect blend of like myth and cinema or something like that, like the way it depicts it. Um, which mm-hmm. I think is fascinating when 
and I try to get at this in my piece on Cinematary, um, that Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, and Justice League to me feel very much like um, Excalibur, like not a direct remake of Excalibur, but taking a lot of the themes and concepts and approaches of that film and um, kind of stretching them out over over these three films. And one of the things that I think is interesting, circling back to the the like the collateral damage of Man of Steel. Um, the, the consequences of these actions, I think is a very fascinating part of Excalibur because it's like, it takes the entire, like, you know, Mallory's Arthurian myth and synthesizes it to a feature linked film. And so it like, it mercilessly moves through time and just kind of focuses on these like key mythic moments and mm -hmm. iconic moments. But often in each moment, there's something that happens or a decision that may is made some kind of destructive hubris that then changes the course of all of the events to follow it. Um, and I think it's interesting in Man of Steel and especially in Batman vs Superman, Snyder's focus on those types of consequences and differing perspectives um, in the way that I love the opening of Batman vs Superman, where it's basically like mm -hmm. Batman's on the ground perspective, perspective of just complete helplessness. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I see a lot of the a lot of parallels with. Um, with Excalibur in that way. I I really like, we haven't talked very much at all about Sucker Punch, which I think is like, I don't know. That's just a movie where I feel like even if you don't like Snyder, you sort of have to respect the audacity of that movie. And just the fact that he wrote that and showed it to people and convinced them to give him money for it and got it made and put it all on the screen. Um, because I feel like it's not just a sort of exercise in like suspension of disbelief, but also a little bit of an exercise in like restraining your kink shaming of Zack Snyder's various fetishes and desires. Um, both, literally sexually but also as a nerd just being like here's mecca here's some steampunk shit here's yeah. ninjas in world war one and scott glenn is like an npc giving you commands before you go into battle but also yeah. it's all a metaphor for trauma and abuse compartmentalization and it's just yeah using like basically video game cutscenes as these like simulations of like working through traumatic memories that have been compartmentalized and i don't know i actually have a quote from Zack snyder about his fetishes if you want that now. go off yeah. yes so this is in an interview leading up to sucker punch what he said though it's fetishistic and personal i like to think that my fetishes aren't that obscure who wouldn't want to see girls running down the trenches of world war one wreaking havoc I'd always had an interest in those worlds, comic books, fantasy art, animated films. I'd like to see this. That's how I approach everything and then keep pushing it from there. I mean, that's honestly like more filmmakers, I think, need to approach it as just like, I'd like to see that. Like not enough people are think about just like what you see and they're just like the story, the character. Um and it's such a, you know, I mean, he cites off things that he likes and it's such a mashup of just things that he likes in different genres and cultural forms. And then literally with that has the mashup soundtrack, um, which is just generally so of that era. I mean, 2011, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally the height of like girl talk and, and stuff like that. And yeah. it also makes you think of... Uh, Adam Sandler's Just Go With It, which I also think came out in 2011, which also has a like entirely mashup soundtrack. And it's more like 
DJ hero or like hood internet style, like two different opposing pop songs put together kind of a metaphor for, uh, you know, opposites attracting uh, a little bit, Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler. Um, but sucker punch is sort of taking that to a weird Baz Luhrmann length of like just different songs that Zack Snyder thinks sound cool. (laughs) Yeah. And also we talk about, or y'all have talked about a lot of the ways his movies are often related. It's like different waves of kind of like just different, like cultural waves, like zombies and stuff like that. But this one reminded me of like the era mainly around the game, lollipop chainsaw. If anybody's familiar with that. No, it's another, like this one's like, it's like, um, basically like dolled up, like high femme cheerleader with like a chainsaw killing a bunch of zombies. And that game was a collaboration between Suda 51 and it was written by James Gunn. Oh, fascinating. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I mean the images in this where it's just like cheerleader, schoolgirl, whatever you want to put in there, feminine image, like with swords and guns and stuff like that. And basically just a video game character who's going around and fucking people up. Mm hmm. There is something that's very interesting, like beyond sexual gaze about this movie, though, because it's just like so much asking you to like identify with these like hyper unreal women who are also you are shown that they are like the victims of this just like extreme, disturbing, horrific trauma in multiple ways. Um, and it's just a very, it's just like such, you know, so many of his movies are driven by such hyper masculine figures that to have this movie that is very hyper femme, but still also hyper masculine in kind of other ways is, mm-hmm. is a really interesting turn in like audience and perspective, I think, or maybe not. I don't yeah. know. Well, yeah. I mean, often those, like the high, those like feminine images that we're talking about are always like the alternate reality that. Zack Snyder thinks he's really doing something by saying that this is like the reality they escape to, to avoid Mm -hmm. like the masculine control basically. But also that movie has Oscar Isaac. Me and Nathan talked about this earlier, but it has Oscar Isaac playing this, like just like a really slimy villain in a way that even when he plays a villain now, it's always like, what if he's this awful person, but also sexy. This is like the only movie that really leans into his capacity for being really gross. Yeah, he's always just like, I don't know, he plays characters where there's like a sheen of respectability, even in Ex Machina a little bit. Um, you know, he's a fucked up tech dude, but it's still like, I don't know, he's he's not just like an unrepentant heel quite in the way that he is in sucker punch and he just seems to be having a little bit more fun he's just i don't know i feel like he's a little overrated i fucking hated annihilation couldn't stand that movie that's the bad sucker punch honestly i'm kind of thinking about it yeah what was that movie he was in where he went to south america to find the runaway nazi officers Oh, I saw posters for that. It's like Operation something. Yeah, Operation whatever that's called. I don't know. I saw that and it's just nothing. He's giving you nothing the whole movie. It's just hard and spy. I watched about 10 minutes of a most violent year and I turned it off. I've not seen that. 
Mm. J.C. Chandor, one of those like prestige filmmakers, people are like, oh, that movie has a veneer of looking good. But yeah, stinkers. Have, have you seen Sucker Punch, Aster? Yes, I have. Um, it's I was thinking where I wanted to cut in, but it's one of the only Snyder films I don't really like, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's really interesting what he's doing. Um, but something about it feels a little vapid to me. And I've rewatched it a couple times and I can't get past that. But I think I do really like how it's part of this. I don't know if it's a genre or whatnot, but films that seem to emulate the like single track motion of like certain video game experiences, mm-hmm. um, or theme rides, I guess, you know, like avatar or, um, uh, there's a couple other that I'm thinking of that escape me but um oh 1917 is one i'm not a fan of that film um but sucker punch i think is interesting and in how it just like you were talking about how um snyder's just like yeah i'm interested in these things and think they're cool here they are in a movie and i think that's wildly fascinating um yeah. and it's also interesting to see what he does with his um with his own story um with his own script so he's kind of like detached or he's no longer anchored to like some kind of heavily protected source material ip that Mm -hmm. you know he obviously had room to do his thing but he couldn't radically just change it if he wanted to um so i think it's really interesting to see sucker punch as kind of this bridge along with guardians um between movies that are like completely cgi almost but bound by a certain source material to like by the time he gets the sucker punch just completely able to do his own thing mm-hmm. but i don't know i often feel like the film doesn't have much subtext to me i think that's what i thought when i rewatched it yeah, last time that is and, true and, yeah. which isn't bad it's a different way of making films but um that's yeah. just the one snyder that i haven't come around on yet um mm-hmm. not sure why <laughs> yeah i mean i just saw it for the first time and it's it's a real shock to the system but i <laughs> I couldn't tell you what I think about it. Yeah, when Army of Me hits. Pretty Again, crazy. That part was just, that was just dope. Yeah, there's there's really cool sequences in it. And I love the the weird, like, old Hollywood studio vibe, like tropes of different kinds of, um, like, classic Hollywood genres, but just mm-hmm. reused almost, like, in a, mm-hmm. a totally pastiche way. Um, some of it made me think of um, Shutter Island and it's like plot devices and elements. Seth and... literally texted me that oh. earlier. Yeah. All right, so I'm not alone. Yeah. Share those thoughts. Uh, I don't know. The only thing was just like the whole like escaping from reality or whatever like that in the mental institution. And then by the end, big twist, somebody that didn't seem like a patient is actually a patient or whatever. You know? Yeah. That's it. It's interesting because they're both like within a year of each other, 2010, 2011. Um, yeah. But this one was like, instead of like playing some detective or something like that, each of like the, I guess like whenever she like starts to like leave reality and go to these like alternate worlds or whatever like that, it always like, again, like a different video game level mm-hmm. each time. Like one time it's this castle castle siege, one time it's like snowy temple with these like robots, you know? I mean, sometimes it's what like World War II bombers or World War One bombers, but I don't know. 
it just reminded me of that because the way you're going back and forth and it's in a mental institution it reminded me of like the evil within games as well I think it's a very different like in some ways it's very different relationships to its characters than some of his other movies because I feel like with just sort of like the hero worship of some of the other stuff there's like a distance between the audience and, a, and that reverence whereas this is like you are because it's so taken from video game form it's like these are really avatars and you're really sort of like on the ground identified with them in a way that I feel like he's just not I don't know he he doesn't seem as confident maybe in that like actual kind of like perspective of like real characters you know what I mean like there he needs that, that some of that distance I think I was also just thinking it feels like a weird flip on like you know when people talk about Tarantino another filmmaker who stuffs his movies with things that he likes. I feel like a common thing is like, you know, people like myself who are not always crazy about Tarantino. I really, you know, I really like Jackie Brown because it's like his only adaptation. It's a little more restrained and kind of focused of some of his wild impulses and fetishes a little bit. And, and isn't just like in the Tarantino verse cobbled together from movies and TV that he likes. And some ways like, Sucker Punch is like the inverse of that, where it's like Snyder's one true original unrestrained thing that is like there's always a little bit of the adaptation sort of like pulling him back. And and his other movies are things that he likes, but he's still conscious of the source material, whereas Sucker Punch is just like fully bonkers, just sequences and set pieces stitched together like and and I think like it's still totally identifiable as a Snyder film in that like mm -hmm. um, one of the themes that I think is most interesting throughout Snyder's work is he's always telling these stories apart from Michael Jordan's playground, of course, but telling these stories where like a group of people or individuals are facing down what seems to be certain annihilation. And then it's, you know, the plot and the themes kind of emerge from like, what do those characters do with that knowledge? How do they react to that? Which is a pretty, you know, basic kind of, masculine setup like how will you survive in the wild um but you know like watchmen is this you know um atmosphere of nuclear annihilation 300 you know the famous story of their you know glorious death um but sucker punch still has that but it's not revealed really until the end i think which is interesting um with mm -hmm. the like a uh, spoiler alert the, the lobotomy um and and so i think it's interesting as a take on that where like the trauma of the character leads them to like almost embrace death as something that's coming or like the the death of the self through the you know complete loss of memories um but engaged in this final act to free the other people around her which i think is very mm -hmm. very interesting um so i you know i i wonder if i was maybe too harsh on sucker punch but i do think there are these very interesting elements to it um there was something else i was gonna say but it's, it's no it does <laughs> have a like conceptualness to it and a kind of it feels very i mean all of his movies are storyboarded and animated but that one feels that way on a like sort of narrative emotional character level too where yeah. it feels mm -hmm. very just sort of designed to be a specific thing and so it sort of lives or dies like it's just it's there's not that sort of like you know, you were talking about the incoherence and how that sort of leads to a fluidity of interpretation. And like you said, Sucker Punch has no su subtext and is meant to be read in one way, uh, pretty much. And I think um, 
Did you see Snow, Steam, Iron, that short film that Snyder did? No, I meant um, to watch that, but totally forgot. Yeah, it's really interesting. From 2017, it's like a four-minute short film. Um, I feel like it does a lot of what Sucker Punch does um, thematically and I guess I would say stylistically um, in, a, in a very interesting way um, in that it's this kind of revenge image um, there's this photograph that keeps emerging. Basically, it, there's a coherent narrative there, but the narrative is fractured. Um, it, it's like splintered, uh, both in terms of how the story is told, and it moves kind of like like a music video, which Snyder is, you know, he comes from music videos, um, did his easy top music video. Um, and a lot of his music videos are this kind of like, uh, you know, you have the images as a shorthand for certain kind of narrative tropes or narrative stories. And then you can just kind of make a film by cycling through them in a way you don't necessarily need exposition, um, which I think Snow Steam Iron does. Mm. In, in a way, it kind of reminds me of, and let me qualify this so I don't sound like an asshole, uh, David Lynch. And it, it was making me think of um, uh, premonitions after an evil deed. And that, um, not to do the whole like, oh, WandaVision is Lynchian. Uh, but for me, what I like about David Lynch is that his movies are not like wacky surrealism or I don't find a lot of them very incomprehensible. Um, there are like stage signifiers for the incomprehensible or the, mm -hmm. like the, the unknowingness of certain things. Um, but often his films are taking kind of well known tropes of like noir films. And so, you know, there's an abstraction to it, but it also kind of has a narrative coherence because of the the genre that it is reflective of. You know, there are only like, you know, wrong man type stories or doppelgangers and, you know, things like that. Um, and I feel like Sucker Punch and Snow, Steam, Iron are attempting to tell this kind of story with these very clear narrative beats, but through a kind of, um, what's the word, like a networked scrambling of different mm. images that are easily identifiable, which you see with this kind of CGI um, post prequels filmmaking, like Paul W.S. Anderson or um, uh, Brian Singer post um, Days of Future Past, um, other filmmakers often doing superhero type um, source material and then having all these like easy signifiers from you know 21st century or 20th century history or pop culture icons or things that are now so easily associated with genres like um, a certain type of car from the 40s its headlight at night like immediately signifies a certain type of noir mm. imagery or you know cowboy imagery and things like that um, so i think there, there's as like a postmodern pastiche there is Snyder is very good at kind of blending those images. I, I just think Sucker Punch is maybe detached from a certain element that a lot of his other films have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You mentioning that he did a ZZ Top video just made me think that Sucker Punch is basically a feature length movie about like ZZ Top music video girls. <laughs> oh, I wish. Yeah. Just the, you know, the impossibly leggy stars of legs and yeah. Tush and all of those great love i don't know there's kind of, i i would have to think about it more but i feel like there's a, a some kind of parallel between zz tops like blues futurism and Zack snyder but it's yeah. neither here nor there <laughs> it is it is kind of a recombination yeah. of like signifiers and yeah icons and symbols that immediately evoke specific periods of time or genres or 
um, aesthetic traditions that may be altered in how we're remembering them, but that's the tradition we've inherited. Um, I mean, like ZZ Top took the kind of uh, sort of improvisation of the blues and really paired it to a strict drum machine beat. Zack Snyder kind of takes all of these wild influences and really condenses them into like storyboard frames and animatics. Absolutely. I mean, Snyder directed ZZ Top's World of Swirl, and then Snyder mm-hmm. went on to make a world of swirling images. You know, that's kind Damn. of... That's, that's what happened. But, mm-hmm. but I do think that's what Snyder does with the DC trilogy, starting right away with, um, with Man of Steel, um, is... And this is touching back on a few things that you said, Nathan, uh, at the beginning of this conversation about uh, Superman's story, where I think what's interesting with Man of Steel is, yes, it is an interpretation of Superman, but it's also a synthesis of, like, the entire trajectory of Superman's iconography through the, like, what, 85 years that Superman has been this pop culture figure. Um, And that continues through, like, you know, the birth of Superman, his basic kind of canonized um, story, and then his death, and then his rebirth. Um, And so I think that's an interesting aspect that Snyder has been developing over the course of his career, but really kind of goes crazy with with the dc movies is condensing like entire arcs which i think is so interesting about the man of steel is it doesn't feel like it's opened up to a cinematic universe it's like oh here's superman's story and then all of a sudden he's dead by the second movie um and i think that's because you know snyder's much more interesting in in telling the the whole arc of the myth kind of like you Mm -hmm. know borman's excalibur does um and, and i think in doing that he is able to grab these images and iconic moments from comic book history and pop culture history and mix it together with this weird kind of pseudo mythological spirituality that's going on there. Um, mm-hmm. It all kind of comes together in, mm-hmm. in the DC movies for him. Yeah. Yeah. And that opening origins, no, not even origin story, but origin kind of flashback at, in Batman versus Superman that has the shooting, you know, killing of, Bruce Wayne's parents Mm -hmm. just in a quick blip compared to how other um, movies kind of render that and and spend time on his backstory. You know, it has Excalibur on the movie theater marquee, but that just is, I think so telling that he collapses the Batman origin story to this like single image of like a pearl necklace breaking on a gun. Um, It's such a fascinating approach, especially within the genre of comic books. Sorry to, I didn't mean to cut you off, Nathan, if you were saying... No, 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 that was all I was saying, no. Um, It's because, like, when you look at a lot of superhero movies, they, especially starting from the early 2000s, but even when the MCU kicked off, they were kind of stuck in this origin story mode where they had to introduce all these characters. But DC's characters um, are a little bit more iconic. Um, Most of them are older, but it it doesn't go through the whole rigmarole of, like, oh, we got to retell Batman, and you have to know Batman's origin in order to get to this part i mean my grandmother knew bruce wayne's origin and that mm-hmm. you know superman was kal-el from krypton you know like he, my grandma doesn't know yeah. who, the, who, who the fuck iron man is but like superman and batman these stories have been told so many times that it's interesting that snyder is freed up narratively to not have to retell every story from the beginning and just kind of like jump into it because most mm-hmm. people know who these characters are especially comic book readers um but even a, a general a general audience and it kind of reminds me of um grant morrison is one of my favorite comic book writers and he also did one of my favorite superman comics which is a all-star superman which does this same kind of retelling the greatest hits of superman but with a modern sensibility and through his interpretation um 
along with Frank Quitely, who's a great um, illustrator. Anyway, so I'm getting distracted by that. Um, <laughs> but uh, Grant Morrison, one time, I think it was in one of his introductions to when he was doing the new X-Men in the early 2000s, he's like, look, I don't give a shit if your grandpa doesn't understand my comic books. Like, there's just a shared language, mm -hmm. and we're just going to dive into it. And um, not that they're exactly the same, Snyder and Grant Morrison, but I do think Snyder's kind of use of these well-known images frees him up to do things aesthetically that he maybe wouldn't be able to pull off if he was so beholden to like an expository origin story and a meticulous like universe building but mm -hmm. sorry to kind of go go off on oh the no <laughs> no this is good, good. all right <laughs> yeah um i don't know about y'all but i feel like we've mostly encapsulated snyder got it down to an essence I feel like that last bit really capped it off. Oh, Got perfect. it down to a few key images. Yeah. Boil it down to the swirl. Snyder style. Um, so yeah, Aster, what, uh, where can folks find you? Do you have anything you'd, you'd like to shout out or promote or anything like that? Um, people can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is, sorry, I'm looking it up cause I forgot what it was. Um, <laughs> Sometimes at, you change it. Yeah, yeah, it happens. You mix it up. Um, Chameleon-like. Uh, at Aster of Puppets. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, you can find me there. I think I'll have some more, hopefully, film writing in the future, working on some stuff. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Glad to hear it. Always awesome. look forward to your analysis. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, that's about it for this this box. Closing yeah. it up, closing up the box. Thanks for having yeah. me. It was a blast. Yeah. Happy to do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good episode, I feel like. Yeah, I think so. Good conversation. Meaty, meaty yeah. uh, boys in some of these movies and meaty texts, meaty subjects, fleshy. Lots to get yeah. into. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you, Nathan? Uh, I am, you know, on the Twitter and and those places at Trillmore Girls. Uh, what about you, Seth? At ASAP Sunscreen. Yeah, and uh, the both of us together as this podcast can be found at Hotbox the Cinema. Mm -hmm. Twitter, Instagram, big cartel. If you want to buy some merchandise, new stickers hopefully coming soon. Yeah. Oh, one thing we forgot to mention is that uh, if you listen to our podcast on Spotify. Oh God! Might be might be worth looking into a different podcast manager or podcast listening platform because they're the only place that's decided to like take an episode down right <laughs> over like a music license issue. I flew My too close to the sun and included a Lady Gaga song in the 2020 yeah. music mix at the end of our retrospective episode, which we had already taken down and re-uploaded because of some audio issues. Um, but it's still on SoundCloud and Apple and all the other catchers. But fuck Spotify. Yeah, those motherfuckers. Yeah. I know. They're taking down yeah. all the Zoomer, like, slowed and reverb uh, remixes that have been uploaded as podcast episodes, probably. Chopped and Screwed is going to get banned. Killing the culture. Mm -hmm. Probably will. But anyways, I guess that's, that's it. Uh, until until the next Snyder cut, keep on token.
Mars in this bitch. Mars, Mars in this bars in this
everybody knows me, I'm a big deal. You can kneel and crawl when you approach me. I got big bucks because I'm bigger than all the universe and its stars. I can buy your life whatever it costs. Name your price, give me what I need to get lost. I can buy the blue from the sky. I'm a rich hog, give me it now. I'm not the guy you wanna piss this piss off. By any means, I get what I want and I want it all. So far.